the devil is in the details. Headlines may grab your attention, but the devil is really in the details. This podcast will examine what I think is important to understanding the headlines. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Pearson. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. When we're little, one of the first social rules we're taught is don't tattle. No one likes a tattletale. Keep that in the back of your mind. This week, whistleblowing swirled in my head. I was contacted by a New York Post journalist to comment on a story about retaliation. Then Mary Trump was sued by her disgraced uncle, Donald Trump, for a whopping, preposterous $100 million, and who claims a lot of things. But the lawsuit focuses on a release of tax returns. While Ms. Trump isn't claiming any whistleblowing defense that I'm aware of, the lawsuit tickled recollection of her uncle's attempts to stop publication of her book and the information contained in the book being of public concern, its content evoking feelings of whistleblowing like public disclosure. I started working on a personal written piece about whistleblowing that I hope to publish. Then I watched the documentary on Britney Spears, Controlling Britney, where numerous people knowledgeable about what I view based on all the information reported to date as criminal conduct related to her conservatorship, detailed information about what can only be a surface level layer of wrongdoing by those responsible for her care and well-being and all of the opportunities missed. So with whistleblowers on my mind, the timing seemed right to tackle the topic. I have spent a good chunk of my career investigating wrongdoing and litigating. And like most people, I have some familiarity with reporting wrongdoing. I've also conducted the first empirical research to examine implicit bias by workplace investigators using a gap analysis conceptual framework, if that interests you. So I might have something to offer here. The term whistleblower has a specific and general meaning. Technically, whistleblowing relates to making a report to an external government entity about alleged misconduct that is usually criminal in nature. Each state and the federal government have laws about whistleblowing, but more colloquially, being a whistleblower is reporting misconduct to someone in authority, whether that be a manager, human resources, an investigative department in your organization, or an external authority. That's how I'm going to use that term in this episode. So as I began, and I asked you to keep in the back of your mind, we're born screaming into this world, and we are immediately taught to be silent. That realization angered me. It should anger you too. For one, we confuse the heck out of our kids. Don't tattle. But if someone ever tries to do this or that or the other thing, tell. Many families have unwritten codes of what happens in the family, stays in the family. I mean, Hollywood made movies that were based on that concept for years. Your employer is probably no different than the family. Rules about silence infiltrate our social interactions consistently and persistently. Our pre-professional lives are an ongoing extended training program. 
Be quiet. Don't tell. That's private. Loyalty. Duty. These admonitions and values are drilled into us. When we dare to speak, for example, to the teacher, the reaction is punitive, corrective, sharp, pointed. The admonishment of don't is linked like handcuffs to the equally imprinting expressions of judgment in their many forms. Doubt, disbelief, justification, excuses, shame. Trained to look the other way, it's no wonder as adults speaking up feels and looks like climbing a vertical wall covered in Vaseline. We are conditioned to believe it's hopeless. Like the greatest ninja warrior, when we learn or see someone else step up and succeed in speaking out and doing what we can't, we stare in admiration and say, good for them, but I couldn't. We are told time and again, we should just stay in our lane, a phrase that I hate. And we learn to believe it's not a human responsibility to help. It's not normal to do the right thing when the right thing requires us to not move against the force of the tide of others, who, like sardines, are conditioned and drawn to the fire fishermen use to catch them, sulfur that fire creates. These tiny little fish in a great big sea, willingly, fully exposed with no protection, jump unknowingly into the net and are swept into situations that impact their lives. For those that manage to resist the inertia, they are subjected to labels like unmanageable, unsupervisable, not a team player, difficult, defensive, angry, resistant, lacking agility, inflexible, not the right fit. If not the right fit means not unethical or unlawful, then I am only too happy to toss those ill-fitting outfits to the landfill. No one should want to wear them anyway. Slowly, in isolated ways, thinking has shifted, but we have such a long way to go. Colleges and universities now have mandatory reporting requirements around Title IX, the 1972 federal law that required equal access to education regardless of sex, and which was the method by which the Obama administration attempted to address sexual assault and sexual harassment on campuses. Though the Obama administration receives credit or is attacked for their efforts, depending on how you view things, Title IX was previously cited in two cases as grounds for pursuing claims against schools in the 1990s, Gebser v. Lago Vista Independent School District in 1998 and Davis v. Monroe County Board of Education in 1999, both Supreme Court cases. Both cases articulated requirements for holding a school liable for failing to stop sexual harassment, underscoring a responsibility to do so. After 9-11, see something, say something was plastered on airport walls, inside subway trains and elsewhere. Speaking up gained speed. The Me Too movement 
was coined in 2006 by Tarana Burke, a black woman, an advocate from New York. It wasn't until a white woman, actress Alyssa Milano, used the phrase in a tweet related to the now disgraced convicted Harvey Weinstein, a former Hollywood producer, that speaking out gained momentum. But still, as I discuss in this essay that I'm writing, there's a disconnect between the word and the act. Whistles are loud, shrill. Whistleblowing, based on my experience, happens quietly. Employees are generally frightened, and they are worried about losing their jobs. Like domestic violence, it takes a lot for someone to come forward to report misconduct. The way I think about it is that whistleblowers make a calculation in their head that allowing whatever is happening to continue is worse than whatever fate they could face when they report the concern. Think about that. An employee finds the situation so intolerable that they are choosing to provoke the wrath of the company that is paying their salary or wage, providing their benefits, keeping a roof over their head, and supplying a financial ability to take care of their health and other needs. It seems like these people ought to be believed, right? Right? Isn't that the argument used for why sexual assault and sexual harassment reports should be believed? Yet, employees who report concerns whether or not the conduct is the result of the employee's membership in a protected class, for example, based on sex, race, national origin, religion, or disability, among other characteristics, depending on the state, are overwhelmingly likely to experience implicit bias that may impact whether the allegations are found to be substantiated. I know. I did the study. Then there is the problem of organizations themselves. They say they want employees to step forward. But what happens when the person stepping forward isn't perceived as valuable to the organization as the person who is accused of wrongdoing? Or what if the report of misconduct has serious implications for the organization when it relates to regulatory issues? Well, here's my answer. Buckle up. The ride will be bumpy. My strongest recommendation is that you take a gander at your company policies to see what your obligations are for reporting misconduct, what their procedures are, and how the process works. Maybe you have a choice where to report it. If you see something concerning, keep records. Keep those records in a place where only you have access and that is not owned by the company in the event that you lose access at some point. That might be something like a journal. I always recommend that folks talk to an attorney in their jurisdiction. Most employment lawyers will meet with you for a consultation free of charge. They may have familiarity with the organization and may have specific pointers for you to consider. If you're making an external report under a specific whistleblower law, the attorney can assist you in understanding those requirements too. Most importantly, make the report. I'll say it again. Make the report. If it's an internal report, make it in writing. Even if the organization says that they'll speak with you, follow up and make it in writing. Many organizations reject written complaints because they say it's too onerous. And I agree to an extent, 
especially if the population is one where there may be a large number of non-native speakers. But there are ways to do it and ways to make the process less overwhelming. One of the benefits of putting something in writing is that, one, it can be documented. But a second benefit is that you get to frame the issue the way you see it. You can't be so sure that the person you're speaking to about this concern is hearing what you're saying. I'd also suggest that you look at the policies for the explicit purpose of understanding what your rights are. If it's not clear, ask. Ask in writing if you can. For example, can you bring a support person in with you? Who? When? If you have a disability, you probably won't be advised up front that you have a right to accommodations during the process. That is so important to know. Here's why. If you have a disability because of your mental health, you may experience symptoms during the process of talking about what is probably a very stressful, horrible situation for you. The people discussing the complaint with you won't know that you have a disability if you don't make them aware of it. And there's a huge risk that these people may interpret how you present in that meeting as meaning one thing and not the other. For example, if you're angry, they may not understand that a sharp tongue can be indicative of anxiety and interpret the words you say and your gestures as meaning something else entirely. There is so much that I could say on this topic, and there will likely be future episodes that delve deeper into what to do in these situations and my thoughts on the systemic gaps that lead employees to feeling betrayed and ultimately remaining silent and allowing these situations to proliferate. But my final message is this. Despite the complexity and the risk, report. Report in writing if you can. Report to whomever will listen. Here's why. And this is the biggest secret of them all. So listen closely. Employees think reporting will put them at risk. But reporting misconduct or unlawful conduct is protected activity. It's activity for which you cannot be terminated. So by reporting your concerns and not living with them silently or just leaving the organization, you are protected. If the conduct is unlawful or unethical, you also insulate yourself from liability by rejecting that conduct. You have to work against the lifetime of training and education that says, be silent, go along to get along, don't rock the boat, don't be a tattletale. No one is going to safeguard your reputation or integrity except for you, and your employment is not forever. These aren't the days of our parents where organizations take care of their employees for an entire career. Most employees are at will and the rising number of employers insisting on arbitration agreements so they can avoid a public trial is overwhelming. Congress should really do something about that if they're listening. So be the tattletale. You didn't cause the problems that brought you to this point. Burn it down. Let the clowns in the funhouse reckon with what they caused. Don't get hustled by subliminal or overt messages of loyalty. Be who you are. Get loud. 
don't follow. Lead the change you want and need to see wherever you are. Being a leader is about what you do, not what your title is on your pay stub or your business card. So that's where I'm going to end it for this episode. If you need some motivation, check out the playlist on Spotify inspired by this episode. You can find it and more on the Devil is in the Details resource page at tracyexplains.com. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, thank you so much for being curious. And if you've listened before, thank you for coming back. Thank you for listening to The Devil is in the Details. Please support this podcast by subscribing wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You may also learn more about me at my website, tracyexplains.com. 